0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning and i 'm glad you all cooled it down for us to come up here from Florida it 's twenty degrees colder here today than, than, than where we 're at, so it 's pretty, pretty chilly, but it 's refreshing isn 't it? Just brisk, brisk, refreshing. Wake you up in the morning <laughs> let 's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven. again, we are so privileged to call you our Father. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our hearts and minds. Make us more effective at this time in history to take a life-changing message to the world that the world can be lighted and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name, amen. amen. We are doing lesson number four in the quarterly Psalms and the title of the lesson this week is The Lord Hears and Delivers. In the memory text is Psalms thirty-four, seventeen, that says the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Don't you love Bible promises like this? <laughs> Haven't you found comfort? I I found comfort in these at times in my life. When you read a promise like this, you can leave that up on the on the board for a minute. Uh, When you read a promise like this, is it a promise you can rely on? For what? For what can you rely on it? Does God always deliver those who cry out to him? If God does not deliver someone who cries out to him, and we're looking at this text, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. If someone cries out and not delivered, does that mean they're not righteous? from no. what? I've had many patients come to me with problems, circumstances, sick loved ones, sick themselves, cancer, uh, and they've cried out to the Lord. And they didn't get delivered from the problem. They're, they're, they still lost their job or their finances didn't improve. And they wondered, am I not righteous? Is there some sin? And some pastors often tell them there's some sin. There's some sin. You need to find the sin and confess it. God can't bless you with the sin. Have You heard this before. Is that what this text means? If, if, if you cry out to the Lord and you're not delivered, you're not righteous. If God, or does it mean that God only delivers some of the time? and that this is a mistranslation. It really should read the righteous cry out to the Lord and sometimes the Lord listens and sometimes the Lord delivers. Is that how it should read? No. Doesn't say when he delivers them. Doesn't say when. The ultimate delivery or how? Or how? That's right. Trouble is. Or what the problem is. And so yes, or what the problem is. So you guys are already processing how because we believe this is a true, this is a truth, but somehow it can be implied in ways that actually do not encourage but discourage. It could be understood in ways that undermine faith rather than establish faith. And so the problem comes when we take a verse like this in isolation and place meanings on it it never intended to convey. This verse is not about God delivering the righteous from all temporal troubles, but delivers the righteous. That's, so my understanding, it's not about delivering from all the problems we have in this world. It is about delivering from all the problems of sin. All the things that interfere with our soul's salvation. That's what this psalm is ultimately, that's my view. In other words, God delivers the righteous from sinfulness and every obstacle in their life that, that would prevent them from experiencing salvation other than their own choice. He does not deliver from every earthly trouble. Now, why is that my understanding? Well, first I consider the examples of the righteous in scripture. Think of the apostle John, Peter, Paul. They were, were they delivered from every earthly problem? John ended up in isolation on an island. Peter and Paul were both martyred. Paul was beaten multiple times, shipwrecked and imprisoned. He had lots of earthly problems he was not delivered from. Peter actually wrote in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, "...in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." Would these people whom Peter is referring to here in this text, who are suffering griefs and all kinds of trials, would they be righteous people? These are not the unrighteous he's writing to, is it? No, these are the righteous. Yet he tells them they're going to have all kinds of trials that are not removed. Because the trials in this circumstance, these particular trials, we have to be careful, not all trials, the ones the Lord permits. Job's trials, if you look in Job's life, were not brought to help Job. Job was already declared in chapter one, perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. He had a faith that was not shakeable. But sometimes in our journey, it's these experiences that drive us to our knees to surrender the coping strategies we've been working with to mature us and grow us in our faith. And this leads us in the context of the Psalms itself. So first I look at the history of the righteous and I see, well, God doesn't deliver everybody from every temporal problem. So that made me think, well, that can't mean that. It has to mean something else. And then I look at the context of the Psalm itself, and we read a little before and a little after Psalms 34, 17, starting in verse 14, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So now we're actually looking at the movement of the soul towards righteousness and away from evil. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut them off, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Saved from what? From discouragement, from From hopelessness? Does it mean you're saved from the thing that is discouraging? That if you're in grief because of the death of a loved one, that he saves you by resurrecting the loved one right now? That's not what it means. A righteous man may have many troubles. There it is. A righteous man may have many troubles. But didn't we just hear that the Lord delivers us from all troubles? But we have many troubles. But the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. What slays the wicked? Evil. Wait a minute. Didn't we read in a review article written in December that God slays the wicked? Is God evil? No. Evil slays the wicked. Interesting. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. So understanding the overall context of scripture, the grand central theme, the purpose of the Bible, which is the purpose of the plan of salvation, it's not the purpose of health and wellness on this earth right now. Not the purpose of glorifying self over others, rising up and being able to dominate. That's not the purpose of the Bible, teaching you how to live so that you can have more than others. It's the plan of salvation is the purpose of the Bible, isn't it? Understanding the the grand central theme, the plan of salvation, here's how I paraphrase it in the remedy Psalms. Those set right with God call to him and he answers them. He heals them from all their sin sickness. That's the troubles that we're delivered. We're always delivered from sin sickness. We're always delivered from fear, from guilt, from shame, from self-loathing, from hopelessness. We always have peace with God when we seek the Lord. That's the deliverance. First paragraph in the lesson says, Again and again, the Psalms highlight the truth that the sovereign Lord who created and sustains the universe also reveals himself as a personal God who initiates and sustains a relationship with his people. When you think about the sovereignty, the sovereign Lord, the sovereignty of God, what comes to mind? Power? Authority? rulership i mean seriously when i hear sovereignty i think of ruler rulership he's sovereign he's ruling you don't think of that Mm -hmm. you do yeah yeah so when you think of rulership sovereignty rulership his governing of his universe what does that automatically lead your mind to think towards or about his law Mm -hmm. his law what if he's running his universe he has a system a system of government we might call it his law Well, how do we understand his law? Does our understanding in our mind of how we believe God's law works impact how we understand God, his character, his government, the problem of sin, the solution for it, his sovereignty and how it works? Doesn't it taint everything? Satan's lie, what's Satan's lie? His core lie, his root lie, the lie that began in heaven. God's law, God's, God's, like law law, law. Law. God's law is the type of law creatures make. Right. The Lord is the creator. He speaks into reality everything, space, time, energy, matter, life. He creates reality. And as creator, his laws are the laws upon which reality function. They're physical, the law of gravity, laws of physics. They also have laws that govern how minds operate. The law of love, which is the principle of beneficence or giving. The law of liberty. Law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it because if you don't use it, you. It's a law, how things work. He governs and sustains reality, how reality works. These are his laws, including the moral laws. Created beings can't make reality, so we make up rules. We call them laws, but our rules don't actually directly impact reality. 35 in a 30 zone. There's no direct impact from reality of going 35 a 30. There's only an impact if the Collegedale police catch you. No one here has ever had that joyful experience. And an external judiciary examines the evidence and pronounces a judgment and inflicts a punishment. This is how human laws work. And this idea of law, how God governs, his sovereignty is at the root of Satan's rebellion in heaven. If you value the book, Desire of Ages, on page 761, Ellen White wrote, In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God could not be obeyed. If if a man should transgress, they could not be forgiven. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. 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 Transgression requires punishment. You must punish. Because if... The law works like our law. If there is a law and you don't inflict punishment for it, then everybody gets away with anything. There's chaos. There's no justice. And so justice equals punishment. And this is the Romanization of Christianity. This is what has corrupted the church. So our new magazine we're releasing today, and it will be available in the back after class, is The Lie That Deceived Angels Infects Christianity, and delays the second coming of Christ. And and this lays out the lie from its origins. It puts it in the context of Reformation and the Reformers and how the Reformers were reforming against the Romanization of Christianity, the idea that God runs his universe like a Roman Caesar runs Rome with a system of rules that he enforces with external punishments. And how as the Reformation came along, there there came a group of people from a wide background of denominations, Methodists, Congregationalists, Baptists that came together and advanced towards the advent of the Messiah, these Adventist reformers. And the Adventist reformers were blessed with the advancing, unfolding light that Galatians chapter three, the law that was added was the Ten Commandments. This was 1888, Minneapolis, Jones, Wagner, and White presented this that the added law of the Ten Commandments, that the law added that Paul, as our schoolmaster, Jesus Christ, was the Ten Commandments. The legalist in the church rejected this. This was the general conference president and those who aligned with him. And they rejected this. And they said, oh no, only the ceremonial law was added. The Moral law of the Ten Commandments is eternal. Well, they took this position because they were afraid if you say the Ten Commandments are added, then somehow the Sabbath is not eternal and it would undermine uh, the, the Seventh-day Sabbath, which was very important to the early church. And the Adventist church had been wandering in the wilderness teaching imperial law. And I have a documentation here from the reformers, reformers from history, reformers in the Adventist church, uh, the there's a whole section in here that goes through the, the landscape of Christianity from Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, Methodist, Reformed theology, Evangelical, Pentecostal, Seventh-day Adventist, showing that the whole landscape of Christianity is infected with this idea that God's law works like human law, and therefore, God is the source of death inflicted upon people as punishment, and ultimately, that God killed Jesus at the cross. This is what's taught across the landscape and that God requires payment made to him and Jesus stands to offer his blood to the father to pay the father so the father won't kill us. This is all paganism. It's all Romanism. It's all corrupt. And the Adventist reformers were continuing the ref- reformation from Luther and, and all the other great reformers advancing. And, and the call was, no, we are calling people back to worship the creator, him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. And in order to worship the creator, you actually have to have a God who creates and his laws are the laws upon which creation operate, not a system of rules. And, and if you read the opening of the Great Controversy in the, in the preface written by Ellen White, she says, uh, if you exchange God's law for human law, you end up worshiping a creature instead of the creator and that's what we're doing. And that's why there's a delay, because God wants his people to worship him. Why does he want them to worship him, the only true God? Because of the law of worship, a design law. By beholding, we become changed. We become like the God we admire, esteem, and worship, neurobiologically and characterologically. And if you worship an imperial dictator who is a source of inflicted punishment, you become authoritarian. You become coercive. You become a rule enforcer. You become the thought police. You become critical, narrow, unloving, but you're only being just because you become like the God you admire or worship. This is a law. And thus we have to call people back to worship the creator. And so this new magazine will be available. If you're watching online, have a U.S. postal address. We ship them anywhere with the U.S. postal address at no cost, no no cost to the magazine, no shipping cost. If you're outside the U.S., Uh, On our website at the end of class, these will be available for digital reading or digital downloads. You can download the PDF files if you want to share with people that way as well. So encourage you to check these out. And then after uh, you've read it and Romans 14, every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Remember, Come and Reason Ministries is not here to tell anybody what to think. Mm, You each have your own identity, your own ability to think and reason, your own mind, and God wants everyone to develop their own reasoning skills. Come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet. So, we're here to present evidences, truths, ideas, perspectives, to challenge thinking, but every person must weigh it out for themselves and be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14, 5. And then if you are, after reading this, you go, yes, this makes sense to me. Then join us and share this. Share it with as many people as you can. Of any denominational background, I think you'll find it very helpful. So, The one lie about the law bends, twists, and perverts everything we teach about God, the sin problem, the plan of salvation, and so we end up in a theology that actually supports Satan's view of God. With that in mind, let's consider Psalm 75 and read it through the Good News Translation and see how the translators, and if if anybody's bilingual, you know that there essentially is never one meaning to a word. Even the word church. If you think the word church, the church can mean the building, the church can mean a denomination. Do- well, in our church, we teach the church can mean the church invisible, that Christ died for his church or he sacrificed himself for his church. So even the word church has multiple meanings. And when you do translation, essentially every word has multiple possible options. And so, uh, I don't believe anybody has done anything nefarious in these translations at all. They chose legitimate words that mean, that are legitimate options for this. But When people translate, they have a certain assumption, certain belief system, certain way of viewing it. And if you go to the Bible already believing without question, God's law works like human law. It's a system of rules and justice requires enforcement. Then when you read certain things, that's what makes sense to you. So you bring over those ideas in the translation. You're gonna see some of this. We're gonna look at Psalm 75 from the good news and then I'm gonna contrast and we'll explore how I put it in the remedy and why. Start in verse two. I have set a time for judgment says God, and I will judge with fairness. Now, that's from the good news. Can you, as you read that, that really leans your mind towards a judicial system, doesn't it? It doesn't have to, but you have to really work to not see a judicial system there. The automatic way of saying that is something judicial. He's going to judge, there's a judgment. Tribunal of some sort. Doesn't it lean your mind that direction? Okay, here's how I put it in the remedy. God says, when the time is right, I will unite my people and govern them uprightly. Do those two speak the same idea to you? No. <laughs> Not at all. Because the words that are translated judgment and judge are actually the words about governing. They're the words, the same Hebrew words for government or governing. And so they can be, I'm going to govern uprightly. Or, so the uprightly is, is injustice. Uprightly or justly. Now both are legitimate. One, comes from the lens of imperialism, Romanism. God's law works like our our law. In order to be just, you have to have a tribunal. You certainly wouldn't inflict punishment without a judgment, so we have to have a judgment so we can uh, add up how much unforgiven sins there are so we can then have a committee to meet out how many minutes they have to suffer, and then we can inflict it. This is Romanism. But if you understand the creator who built reality, and sin deviates from his design. These are sin-sick people, and he is seeking to eliminate the sin in order to restore to life and health and govern uprightly, govern in righteousness. verse three, though every living creature tremble and the earth itself be shaken, I will keep its foundations firm. This leads one towards God's in control. God's sovereign. He's going to, doesn't matter what you do, he's going to, you know, keep things. Well, here's the remedy paraphrase. When the earth and all its selfish inhabitants slowly decay, it is I who holds the cure, the foundational design for life. Now, if you think of the theme of Scripture, the grand central theme, what is the purpose of Scripture? Isn't it the story of rebellion against God, the sin problem, and God's solution for it? Isn't that the theme? And doesn't God hold the foundational design for life and health? Yes. And the cure. And if we go against Him and sin, what happens? We're decaying, we're collapsing, we're dissolving. Verse 4 I tell the wicked not to be arrogant. That's in the good news. The good news truncated this version severely, left out an entire second phrase, so I'm going to add the NIV on this verse. And so this is the NIV version. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. And then the paraphrase from the remedy. To the arrogant, I say, stop bragging about yourselves. You have no remedy. And to the wicked, don't blow your own horn of self-exaltation. <laughs> I mean, what, is, what do we historically understand the, the problem the Laodiceans are? They think what about themselves? That they're righteous and holy and filled with all types of spiritual wealth, and they have no need. Isn't that the problem? They're blowing their own horn, their own spiritual horn. We have the Sabbath. We have the books of prophecy. We are the we are the remnant. We are the chosen. We are the blessed. We don't need heart transformation. We have the blood payment. verse five. I tell them to stop their boasting. Again, the good news truncated this. Here's the NIV, which includes the second phrase. Uh, Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. And so here's how I paraphrase that. Do not trumpet your own spiritual health, trying to exalt yourself. Do not be proud with heads held high and necks unwilling to bend in humility and accept treatment. Verse six, judgment does not come from the east or from the west, from the north or from the south. It is God who is the judge, condemning some and acquitting others. Do you you see this has a very legal, when you read this, it's hard not to think you're in a courtroom, a judicial problem, you're in trouble, you're being examined. This is how I paraphrase that. The exaltation and restoration of humanity does not come from anywhere on earth, east, west, north or south. It is the Creator God who governs. The proudly selfish die while the humbly righteous live. Judgment can mean judicial, but judgment can also mean diagnostic and therapeutic. When a doctor examines a patient, examines a patient. He's looking deep to identify everything that is wrong and make a judgment. What's wrong? We call that a diagnosis. That's a judgment. And then the doctor makes a new judgment. Here is the treatment that will eliminate the disease and restore you to health. That's another type of judgment. And God judges the earth. He judges what's wrong. And he judges what's needed. And in his judgment, he loved the world so much that he sent his son, that whosoever believes in him should not die of this condition, but have everlasting life. This is a different type of judgment. It's not judicial. It's reality based from a loving God who's the creator and wants to restore his creation to unity or at one minute, atonement, at one mint with him. But if you have a human law model in mind, you read these words judiciously as, as a judiciary or a penal legal system, and it corrupts the entire way we understand scripture. Yes. You also need to understand the intent of the judgment. Is it punitive or is it corrective? And that goes directly back to the law model. When a doctor makes a judgment, he's not being punitive. He's making a judgment related to what's wrong. When a, when a magistrate makes a judgment, it's generally designed for punitive purposes. Verse 8, the Lord holds a cup in his hand filled with the strong wine of his anger. He pours it out and all the wicked drink it. They drink it down to the last drop. Some verses instead of anger will say it's wrath. Again, putting it, if you notice how the, the good news is coming, you, you read that and, it, and it, does it incite a sense of desire to run into God's presence? Or does it incite this idea of a judge looking, who's got wrath, he's going to pour out? Does that incite the desire? I need someone to protect me and hide me. That's not good news. <laughs> I know you need something done to this God in order for you need a payment. You need you need some blood sacrifice. You need your your records erased. You need something to shield or hide you. This is what happens when you have an imposed law model. Here's how I pa- paraphrase it in the remedy. In the hand of the Lord is a cup filled with the unfermented wine of absolute truth and love. He pours it out, and all the selfish of the earth drink it drink down the truth of their true condition, bitterly swallowing every evil and corrupt fact they have thus far denied. And this is what happens. This is what Paul means when he says they're piling up wrath for the day of wrath. You see, when you do evil to another person, you sear your conscience, harden your heart, warp your character, damage your soul. You will naturally, automatically, without divine intervention, experience guilt and shame self-condemnation, fear of punishment. This is what it says, that Christ died to destroy him, holds the power of death and free those who live all their life in fear of death. And this fear of punishment, of rejection, of abandonment, of death, this is what sin brings. This is the natural result. And people don't like it. There's only two ways to resolve it. When I say resolve it, resolve the feeling of it. One is repentance which is a transformation. We die to the old. We're reborn with a new heart and right spirit so that we're not that person anymore. We don't operate on those same methods. We're reconciled to God. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We live a life of truth and love now rather than fear and selfishness. We've been changed. And then the guilt and shame go away because that old man is dead and I'm living a new life. And thank you, God, for delivering me from this condition with which I was born. But there's another way you can avoid the guilt and shame, and that's denial and distortion. It wasn't me, Lord. It was the woman you gave me. If you didn't put her in the garden, I would have done this. I don't need to feel guilty. It's her fault. In fact, Lord, it's really your fault because you put her there. In fact, you put the tree there. And if you put the tree there, we couldn't have done it. It's really all your fault. It's not my fault. Denial and distortion. Have you ever heard people say bending the truth, twisting the truth? He's bending the truth, twisting the truth. You can't bend the truth and you can't twist the truth. You can only bend your mind around the truth. Understand this. Truth is truth. It's reality. And it cannot be bent or changed. People can only bend their minds around it. And so metaphorically, think of a telephone pole. You have a telephone pole. And between you and the pole, we hold up a lens. And through the lens, as you look to the pole, the pole now appears bent. Have we bent the pole? The pole is not bent, just our view of the pole. And people who deny the truth, deny reality to avoid their own guilt and shame, make this externalization, blame game stuff, they put these filters on their own mind. And they have to wear them everywhere because if they, if they take them off, they will see some truth that will bring guilt and shame. So they have to wear them, and they're constantly bending their minds. Now, if you are talking to somebody who has very thick goggles on with these warped lenses, so as they look at a pole, a telephone pole, it appears bent to them, and you don't have the goggles on, will you ever convince them to pull straight as long as they're wearing those lenses? Oh, no. Have you dealt with people like this? There are many people that have guilt and shame of their own life that they don't want to face and deal with. And they create these distorted theologies and other things to protect them and hide them from their own selves. And there's no convincing them until they're willing to actually be truth, truthful. And this is what... Italian Thessalonians, the wicked die. They suffer in the end and die in Thessalon. Why? Because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. Notice, did not love the. In other words, they. It's not that they didn't know the truth, and it's not that they didn't love their church or their theology or their twenty-eight fundamental beliefs or their doctrines or their Sabbath keeping or their tithe paying. They might have loved all that stuff. They didn't have a love for truth. Thus, as truth came, and God is infinite, we're finite, truth is always advancing. They would not advance in truth. They had to protect the doctrines that they understood from advancing light. And so maybe, maybe at one point in time, in, in, AD, in, in BC 5, 5 BC, they're teaching the truth that we are God's chosen people. We have the books of the Old Testament Torah, and the Bible teaches that Messiah is coming through our families, and we're looking forward to him. And in 5 BC, that was true. But Jesus came and they rejected that truth. They didn't advance with advancing light. And today, there are people still claiming those Old Testament promises that the Messiah is coming through some Jewish family today to be born on earth for the first time. They will never advance in truth. They will never, until they're willing to give up the lie that they're believing so that truth is no longer truth to them. It keeps them from accepting the truth. And this happens in Christianity when we won't accept the truth about God's law, when we hold to the Roman view of law. So it talks about the, the wicked are boasting. Oh, I didn't read my, my, my version yet, did I? Of that, Or did I? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. So why, why uh, swallowing every evil fact it says, so the, the wicked boast in vain. Well, the wicked boast in vain because it would be like this. Decl- uh, boasting in vain. Declaring that people who jump off the Empire State Building live longer than those who take the elevator down. <laughs> it would be like claiming that cigarettes improve lung function. <laughs> I've had occasional patients say that. I breathe better when I smoke. Oh. It would be like putting a screen door on a submarine. <laughs> Declaring men can become women and women can become men. Do you understand why these illogical declarations occur? Like declaring a man can become a woman. Why has it happened? Because people believe that human law systems are the way reality works. Made-up rules determine right and wrong. And made-up rules can be changed. Thus if reality is determined by made-up rules and we change the rules, we change reality. So we pass a law that men and women can change that and all that, then that's the way reality works because that's what they believe. I recently... I recently read a global study of 15-year-olds that tested their reading comprehension. Global. 100 countries of the world, global. So this is not cultural. It's neural developmental, and how kids are taught in the world, across the globe. And, and what they found was 91% of 15-year-olds worldwide could not tell the difference between fact and opinion. Amen. 91% cannot tell the difference between fact and opinion. Why do you think certain political forces want to lower the voting age? Clearly. What happens if we substitute opinion for fact, for truth? We end up doing irrational and destructive things like walking around with a mask on our face to stop us from catching a virus that can't be stopped by the mask on our face. Seriously. Or we take an experimental injection with no evidence at all of long-term safety because the people in authority declared that it's safe. My opinion, I'm the author. It's safe, but it's never been used. We have no data. It's all right. Opinion is the same as fact. He said it's safe. It's safe. Who are you to question? Or we believe that justification is when God declares us to be righteous while we remain unrighteous. Or a myriad of other fantastical things taught in Christianity that contradict objective reality in Scripture itself. People don't know how to think and reason. Come, let us reason together. We must lead people to objective reality and the God of reality and away from this Romanized system of thinking. The person in charge who speaks ex cathedra from the papal seat is speaking truth, and we have no right to question. I can tell you, 13 years ago, I had an opportunity to discuss things with certain theological leaders in this community, and one of the associate pastors told me that I had no right to question the senior pastor and what he taught because he was God's anointed. And if God's anointed said it, who am I to question it? See? Opinion Mm -hmm. presented as fact. Mm -hmm. Authority. Mm -hmm. People like authority... Because if they can surrender responsibility for decision to somebody in authority, they don't have to have the anxiety and stress of making a mistake. I'm just doing what I'm told. It's not my fault it didn't work out. It's their fault. They are the ones in charge. I'm just following, and I'm a good little boy and girl doing what mommy and daddy said. This is why some people prefer the authority approach, because they don't want the stress of having to figure it out for themselves. Sunday's lesson and we have to get there because I told, told people last week we'd get there. <laughs> the lesson points our attention to Psalms 139, 1 through 18, which addresses the question of that was brought up last week about being knit together in our mother's womb. Yeah. Yes, yes. So we're going to unpack that. We're going to do the same thing we just did, this time NIV versus remedy. And we're going to go through Psalms 139, starting in verse 1, 1 to 4. This is the NIV. Lord... You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. And this is my paraphrase in the remedy. Lord, you have examined me and you know everything about me. You know every action I take. From across the cosmos, you know every thought I think. You know whether I am working or resting. You know my heart motives, the way I operate. Before the words come out of my mouth, you know exactly what I will say, O Lord. What is the theme of these verses? The theme. God's awareness, God's omniscience. These are verses about God's foreknowledge, about knowing all things. Some don't like these verses because they confuse foreknowledge with forecausing. It's not the same. We'll talk about that again in a moment. Verses five and six. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for for me to attain and and from the remedy. You, You seek me to lead me. You surround me, guiding me and protecting me. The full knowledge of you is too immense for me. You are infinite and I cannot comprehend it. Is there a difference in those translations? The first four verses were very similar. Do you see any differences here? No. Yes. Mm, I don't know. You hem me in behind and before? It could be I'm in a playpen. I can't get out and have freedom. Sounds like, yeah, constrained. I'm restrained. I'm held back. I'm not free. I'm imprisoned. It could be hemmed in, depending on how you understand it. You lead me, you, you seek to lead me, to surround me, guiding me and protecting me. Oh, wait a second. Now I've got the hedge of the protection we see in the book of, uh, of Kings where, where Elisha sees the, the angel armies all around. We, we're, we are hemmed in. We're hemmed in with grace, with love. With, but see, hemming in, it requires a certain understanding for it to be a joyful thing rather than a constraining thing. So, so I don't have a problem with hemming in if we understand it in those lights, but it, it lends itself a little bit to maybe being understood in a, Restraining light, rather than a protecting light. I I read hemming as more of a protective ring than a string. And that's a great way to read it. That's a great way to read it. Like Job's hedge. Yeah, that's a great way to read it too. These are excellent ways to read it. Certainly correct. But I I know that uh, that when I was a kid and I was hemmed in by my parents' rules and the (laughs) and the fence and in college, of academy's uh, principal. And uh, (laughs) you were not hemmed in much. (laughs) Oh, I was hemmed in a lot, but we won't talk about that. (laughs) Always dangerous to talk about your child with mom in the room, you know? (laughs) So, verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn... If I settle in the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And from the remedy, where can I go and be away from your spirit? You sustain all reality. Where can I flee and be beyond your presence? If I go to heaven, your sustaining presence is there. If I sleep in the grave, your sustaining presence is there as well. If I rise with the beams of the sunlight in the east, if I settle beyond the ocean waves in the west, even there your hand would guide me. The one at your right hand would keep me safe. I could claim that darkness will hide me and the light around me be turned to night, but my claim doesn't change reality and no darkness is impenetrable to you. For night becomes day in your presence and darkness becomes light. So the themes of these verses, again, speak of the omniscience and omnipotence of God. The remedy emphasizes the reality behind these truths that God is the creator and the sustainer of reality. Thus, it's not magic or wishful thinking. It's, it's the way it works. All nature is sustained by him, created by him, sustained by him. So he has, his presence and energy are there holding it all together all the time. We can't get away from that in this, in this reality. And the remedy emphasizes that the right hand of God, is a symbolic representation of the Son of God who stands at the right hand. Jesus is the member of the Godhood who wields the power of God. Through, all him, through him, all things are made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. And through him, all things are sustained. And so that right hand is, our safety is the right hand of God because our safety and security and redemption are found in Jesus. So it, it emphasizes that by capitalizing right hand. Now we get to the verse that, in my opinion, have been, verses, in my opinion, have been misunderstood to teach something never intended and not found in the verses themselves. And I, I, I prepare myself because this, uh, for some reason, has become extremely emotional to lots of people and they get very uncomfortable with an exploration of possible other ways to understand these texts. So I encourage you, if you get a gut emotional reaction, to pause and go, wait, let me think that through. But it's okay at the end of the day because... Romans 14, every person be fully persuaded in their mind. It's okay with me if you don't agree with my my understanding of these verses, but let me explain it to you. So here's out of the NIV. For you created me, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And from the remedy, for you have redeemed my heart and mind. You covered me with grace from the moment I was conceived in my mother's womb. Do those say the same thing to you? These are quite distinct and different. Which do you think is more accurate? Before we get into the Hebrew words, think through the meaning. On its own, reason through the meaning of the two. Does God create sin? No. No. Does God create sinfulness, no. sickness, defects? No. Or when God creates, does he create imperfection? Does God create sinless beings without defects? What's your opinion? What's your conclusion? God creates sinful sinners? If we say God is creating us in our mother's wombs by using the same level of divine power and creative energy that he did in Eden, then we have a real problem. For none of us chose to be born sinners. And if God is in fact the one who directly made us the way we are, then we can rightly turn to him and say, how dare you call me to account for my sinfulness when you made me a sinner and you never gave me a choice not to be born a sinner. Mm-hmm. Right. Amen. In other words, to interpret that this text to mean that God directly made each one of us by his divine action is to make God the source of sin and also our personal individual sinfulness. This is a lie. Let me, let me do the whole explanation and we'll take questions. God created Adam and Eve directly in Eden. And they came into life sinless beings. But when he created them, he endowed them with an ability before they sinned to be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. He gave them the ability to make choices in their own person that would change them and they would be able to pass those changes on to their kids to make their kids more and more in their image. These are epigenetic modifications. And because they sinned, these propensities of sin are passed on to the children, as the commandment says, the sins passed down three and four generations. Yes. And we have good science now of epigenetic modification. The, the, the DNA is a sequence of DNA is the actual library of information. Epigenetics are the molecules that sit on the DNA, telling the DNA which ones to express and which ones not to express, which books to open and which books to keep closed in our library of information. Parents not only pass along the library of information, they pass along the instructions on the constellation of how to express those genes. And parents who have lived holy and healthy lives will pass along instructions that give advantages. And parents who have have had children before they've got victories, let's say, will pass along disadvantages. And this is well documented. So people who, so I, I, I do, I have an entire lecture on the developing brain multiple studies on epigenetics and how um, our genes are constantly being, their expression is being altered. In fact, identical twins at birth have like 98% of their genes expressed exactly the same. By the time they're 60, it's only about 25% are still expressed the same. Their life experiences, even though they have the same sequences, has caused epigenetic modifications. And if you've known identical twins, they're not identical people. They change themselves based on their choices. And we pass those things along as well. Thus, God created Adam and Eve with an ability to change themselves, which they did, and they corrupted themselves into sin. And then when they had children, they had children born like them, not like God created them. They were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5. Further, the Bible tells us that we are one human family, all branched out from the human family tree that descended from Adam. Thus, we are all in Adam when Adam sinned, offspring of Adam, not new creations. Get your mind around this, not New creations by God. We only become new creations by God's divine power at conversion when we are reborn. And Paul wrote in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen. The old is gone, the new is come. That's when God uses divine power in our individual lives now to convert, transform, renew us in righteousness. So we are new creation by rebirth, not our first birth. We are new individuals descended from Adam by our first birth, but that is part of the old creation, the old creation damaged by Adam's sin. Our first birth is not the action of divine energy to create a new species and new humanity, but is the outworking of God's gift of procreation given to humanity. So the way God uses divine power, prerogative action, initiative, and energy to create a new purified humanity is the work of Jesus Christ as our savior. That's a divine act. So I cannot accept the idea that Psalms 139 means that God acts directly to create each one of us as individuals, as new creations. Then, now, now with all that reasoning, Let's look at the language. And after we look at the language, we'll take your question. So remember my paraphrase said, for you have redeemed my heart and mind. You covered me with grace from the moment I was conceived in my mother's womb. And here's a footnote in the Remedy Psalms, and we're gonna go through the footnote. The Hebrew word translated in many versions as formed or made, quana, and according to the New, Amer- is quana, and according to the new American Standard, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek dictionaries is translated most commonly as bought by God purchased, and also redeemed. That's the same word that they translate as formed. The Hebrew word translated as inmost being is kilyah, and means seat of emotions or affections. Thus, the, my, my translation as heart and mind. The Hebrew word translated as knit me together, according to the Enhanced Strong's lexicon, is sak- sokak, 23 occurrences, and translates as cover, Fifteen times, covering twice, defense once, defended once, hedged in once, joined together once, set once, and shut up once. Contrary to popular translations, the context of this verse is not about physical embryological development or God using power to physically create a new human life, but it is about the plan of redemption. The psalmist in Psalms fifty-one five describes that He was born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and here. Acknowledges that despite his sinful origins, God was already there acting to redeem and cleanse him from sin. Again. That's what this is about. That's my view. Okay, question. I agree with what you say. But as last week, I said it, I took great comfort in the fact that, you know, because of the abuse I went through and growing up, that, okay, he, he knit me together. Okay, so now I've got to relearn. But he knits us together through his design. He wrote the code. He gave the gift. He sustains his ongoing laws of health. And thus his energies are involved in our decision making to procreate and have children in our image. So without his life-giving presence and power, this wouldn't happen. But he is not making a divine act. Okay, so my personality, my outgoing personality, um, all of that, he did not give me. He gave it to you in his system of inheritance that he wove into the creation human. Exactly. Uh, yeah, the DNA. The, the DNA. Yeah. In the DNA. Into the DNA. Oh. He, yeah. he gave Adam and Eve the ability to create. So you inherited things from your parents. He didn't decide what your eye color would be. He didn't decide your, okay. what your natural hair color would be. Notice how I said that, natural hair color, folks? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't decide that. That was all genetically determined. And, and the things that we experience in utero, not only do we get the DNA sequences, we get epigenetic modifications, and, and then we get neurodevelopmental things that happen based on um, whether we, our mothers get infections when we're in their womb, or whether they eat nutritiously or don't eat nutritiously and so forth. This all epigenetically changes us as well. Or drink alcohol. Or drink alcohol. All these types of things. Smoke marijuana. This changes the developing person. God is not making these decisions for this infant to be formed in this way. Mm-hmm. It's all design law. It's all design law. That's exactly right. And then we'll close out this, uh, this psalm. Any other questions about that? Is, have you heard it this way before? I like the end of it where you said, at birth he gives his grace. Yes, that's exactly what it is. All of that. He, is, he is working at the moment of conception with grace for every one of us. Amen. Amen. He's always working. That's why John the Baptist was, had the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That's right. Yeah. Exactly right. To, to presume that God has direct impact on the embryology oh, development would have some <laughs> interesting discussions and impact on teratology. Exactly right. I mentioned this, and I think it's in my... I think it's my book, The God-Shaped Brain. There's a whole section on there uh, because I have patients who, why did God want my child to be born with this problem? Why did God design me to have schizophrenia? Why did God blah, 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 why did blah. Who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? This question has been going back a long time. So it's okay for us to, as we are um, growing a child, okay? to ask the lord to bless this child to protect this child to make this child to be everything that he can create it to be where where does our our faith in god's blessing of this new creation come in so what, what, is the plan of, what is the whole book of scripture about? Is it about if you do right, you get good physiological. It's the health wellness gospel. You keep the rules. You trust God. You have faith in God. You're guaranteed good health and wealth for you and your family. God. No. So when we pray for these blessings on our family and kids, yes, we certainly do. Uh, the older I get, the more I've appreciated the health I used to have. <laughs> My body cannot do the things. My body used to be able to do. Aches and pains and things that happen. This is that aging thing. God did not God did not design aging. No. No. Understand that. And any health problem that any infant or any adult has, God did not design that. It's a deviation from his design. But the Bible is not a plan of of physiological perfection. That's not its plan. That's that's the glorification we get at the end. And that's the easy part. Snap the fingers, physiological fix like that. That's easy. What's the hard part? Heart: and mind. Heart, mind, transformation. Winning from fear, selfishness, and distrust to love and trust. And thus, the whole, planet, the whole Bible and what we pray, if, you're, if we're really, we're praying that the Lord will work on the heart and mind to bring our children to the true intimate knowledge and friendship with him. Mm-hmm. And certainly, we would like them to be healthy and wealthy. Nothing wrong with that. Unless, unless the wealth would lead them to the Solomon Trail. Think what Solomon did with wealth. Or the health to the Samson Trail. Or the health to Samson Trail. There you go. Good examples that too much health and too much wealth can be... And so sometimes the Lord doesn't... And I I will tell you, there's been times I've prayed for miraculous wealth (laughs) in my life and God loved me too much to give it to me. (laughs) No, really. Think parents... Parents, have your kids ever asked you for something that in and of itself was that that whatever they asked, like money, in and of itself is not harmful. But you know, if you gave it to them at that time in their life, they couldn't handle it and they would harm themselves with it. So we pray for these things, but always under the will of God and his grace and his sovereignty and his wisdom and his knowing the future. And ultimately, God's intentions for us are always better than our intentions. Amen. So we pray, yes, we pray. And remember the scripture, all things are always good for for those who love love the Lord and are called to his purpose, right? Is that what it says? All things work together for good. There are many things that are not good in this world. Having a child born with a certain physiological or or other handicap or defect, that is not good. Who said that this man was born blind? Neither. This was permitted so the glory of God could be manifest in his life, okay? This was not good, but God can bring good out of it. And that is often some of the things that we see um, with some of the struggles that we have. Yes? I think sometimes our misunderstanding is because we don't remember that we're not to be living in this world forever that this world is not our home and that we sometimes try to understand why things are the way they are when this is not our home. This, we're not made for this age. When we're redeemed, when we're saved, God has brought us to a new life that's higher above this earth that he's preparing us to go into. And it's sometimes a real challenge, isn't it? It's to see beyond the here and the now, to see the eternal realities, to see the movements. Of, don't, do you ever pray, and I have, and, and, and again, the Lord is gracious enough not to answer my prayer the way it is because I probably couldn't handle it. But I've prayed sometimes to have my eyes open like Elisha's servant, to see the behind-the-scenes movement. Oh. Have you ever had that prayer? Like, I'd really like to see the angels around. No, no. And, no, no. <laughs> but, that, but then I actually thought, or do you remember, remember Mary and Elizabeth had an angel visit them, right? Daniel had an angel visit, and I said, boy, and I thought about this, and I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great if Gabriel came and I could ask him questions and have a nice conversation? No, no, it wouldn't be good. And I thought about it. I said, if, if Gabriel appears in my room tonight, it's going to scare me. <laughs> and my first question is, where's your ID card? <laughs> No oh, really how do I know you're I, I saw another angel of light go to Jesus in the wilderness I read about that how do I know who you are I don't know who you are I've never met you how can I tell get a DNA get a retinal scan I don't know so the Lord doesn't allow this type of stuff to happen because it's too easy for a demonic angel to appear as an angel of light and to deceive and uh, But one day we will meet our angels and we'll have these conversations. I've seen angels, Tim. You know that. Yes, you have. You had a, a circumstance where angel helped you out. Yes. But you didn't have a theological conversation. No, I did not. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't look with wings. He looked like a human. No, it looked like common people. And then when they helped me... They were gone. They disappeared. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Wednesday's lesson... Paul points to 1 Corinthians 10 as uh, Israel leaving Egypt as an object lesson for the plan of salvation. And I just thought I'd run through just a little bit of the, um, the real historical events and how they point to the plan of salvation. Egypt represents the sinful, godless world. All through scripture, whenever you read about Egypt, Egypt is godlessness. Who is God that I should know him, Pharaoh says. And Pharaoh represents Satan, the ruler of the godless world. And the descendants of Israel are initially invited into Egypt with the promises of the land of Goshen and all this better place to live, without the tribulations and troubles of the of the world. And Satan invites and tempts people into sinful living practices, which then become habits and addictions that enslave them. Moses, a deliverer, was born from among the people. Jesus, our deliverer, was born from among humanity. Uh, The The people resisted and rejected Moses. Humanity has resisted and, to a great degree, rejected Jesus. Moses confronts Pharaoh and secures the slaves' freedom. Jesus confronted Satan and secured our freedom from sin. Moses leads the people out of bondage to the promised land. Jesus leads us out of the bondage of sin to our heavenly promised land. The people grumbled along the way because they had to give up the comforts of Egypt. And we grumble along the way to salvation because we have to give up our comforts, our addictions, our sinful habits, our false beliefs that give us false security. <laughs> they walk through the Red Sea and metaphorically are baptized, and we grow through the ceremonial water baptism to symbolize the true immersion of the heart and mind in the water of the Holy Spirit that cleanses and renews us. They drank from the water from the rock, and we drink living water from Jesus Christ, our rock, and they eat manna the heavenly bread, and we partake of the word made flesh, the living bread that came down from heaven. God approached them at Sinai to talk to them directly with no one in between. But they rejected that. Get your mind around this. They rejected it. He came to talk to them directly. And they asked for Moses. They told Moses to have someone stand between them and talk for them. God still seeks to talk to us directly, but we prefer to teach a theology of a go-between that hides us and protects us from God. God wanted to take them directly into the promised land, but their distrust rebellion caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And God is wanting to been ta- has wanted to take us to heaven for a long time, but our distrust and rebellion has caused us to wander in this wilderness for a long, long time. So those are some of the parallels, and there's more, but I thought we'd go over those. We're about out of time, and we got something special to do now, so aren't we ready? So y'all come on up. And this is Brady Roy Mendezable, and if you want any family, they can come up too. Brady is the son of Roy and Evelina Mendezable. And he was born May 20, 2023, 11.14 in the morning, weighing in at 6 pounds and 12 ounces and 20 inches tall. <laughs> Roy's father, was a physical therapist, and Evelina is a stay-at-home mom to care for, for uh, Brady Roy. And they have asked to dedicate Brady Roy to Jesus today, and they have said they want him to grow up to be a God-fearing man that will stay on the the straight and narrow but rewarding path. For Brady to know that if he ever strays, that mom and dad will always be there to help pick him up and get him back on the path. Uh, They also pray for Brady to always keep God number one in his life and to be a light in the dark world while practicing the methods of the creator God in his heart. Uh, This is a very biblical thing to do. They brought their children to Jesus, and, and this God has designed that parents stand in the role of God to the children. Psalms 103:13, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And Isaiah 66, 13, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. And in God's design, he has gifted us with many attributes similar to to his own. And I'm just going to run through some of those very quickly. Parents first act the role of loving creators. Just as the Father, Son, and Spirit united in love to create Adam and Eve and Eden in their image, so also human beings are designed by God to come into the unity of marital love and create beings in their image. As Adam and Eve entered into the Sabbath rest in loving relationship with God immediately after creation, hey, buddy, hey. Hey! Yeah, you want to sing for us? He's preaching. Yes. So also infants immediately enter into the loving arms of their parents, resting in their tender care. Just as God provided the garden home for Adam and Eve as a place of discovery, learning, and insight, so godly parents provide homes enriched with resources to nurture, inspire, and comfort. Just as God filled the garden with foods perfectly designed for human health, so loving parents provide nutrition for their children's health. Just as God brought the animals for Adam and Eve to name, for Adam to name, so also parents provide for their children opportunities to apply themselves, even though the parent could do it better. The love of the parent, like God's love for Adam, rejoices to see their child grow, apply themselves, develop, and they share in the glee, smile, laugh, and joy of the child's new discoveries. Just as God provided useful labor for our first parents to develop and advance, so godly parents will provide age-appropriate labor so the child can develop their skills and advance. Just as the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father loves his son, so also loving parents discipline the children, teaching them right from wrong. Just as God said, come now, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, and wants his children to develop their individuality, their own ability to reason and think and weigh evidence. So parents will teach their children not just the rules, but the reasons for the rules, to reason for themselves. And just as Jesus invited his disciples into understanding friendship, so also loving parents do all of this so that one day their children will grow up to be understanding, mature, trustworthy friends of God and thereby be individuals who no longer need parenting because they have the mind of Christ. So let's go ahead and pray over Brady Roy and we're praying over Evelina and Roy and asking for the blessing on them as they parent this young gentleman here. Yeah. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for this privilege you've given us to to act in the role, a very godlike role, to procreate and bring beings into the universe in your image and in our image. We uh, uplift Brady Roy to you and we ask an angel be dispatched and watching God over him his entire life that when he runs into difficulties you will be there to give him discernment and wisdom to make wise choices and strength to follow through for those choices we pray for Evelina and Roy that you will bless them in their in their home the way they treat each other the way they parent the way they discipline that they will model you in in the closest to perfection that a human can do that this child will grow up to love and honor you with his life we pray in your holy name amen, amen.